Good morning. I am Noah Joyner, the pastor of whatever needs to be done here at North Wake. I do a little bit of everything. So, um, and I don't have a title. I need to come up with a really cool title like Ben Wall has. He gets to make, he got to make his own title up. So, so I can do that. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms out there. Some great looking moms in here this morning. I saw everybody kind of bringing their moms in and all proud of their moms. So that's, a, that's great. Glad you moms are here. The scriptures tell us that we should honor our mothers and fathers, and I want to take a moment to do that, to honor all the moms in my life. I have more than some. Uh, most people get one. I've got four really great moms. Um, my mother, Peg, I'm just so thankful for her. She introduced me to the Savior uh, in my early 20s and really has just been a great encouragement to me to continue following the Savior, even when it's hard. Um, my mother-in-law, Beth, uh, is a, just a great encouragement. She serves our family so well. She just shows what it looks like to serve uh, like I think Jesus would. Um, she doesn't expect anything in return and just wants to love on us, and, and I'm so thankful for her. And, uh, my wife, Stephanie, is such a great mom to our boys, and uh, God's really just reaffirmed that recently uh, with our son, who's been in the hospital for about a month. Um, she's just been there by his side the whole time, and uh, has just been so selfless and just wants to do whatever he needs to have done. She's just an amazing mom, and I'm sure that God will bless her for that. The fourth mom that I have in my life is is North Wake. Uh, John Calvin said <clears throat> that the church is like a mother. Uh, it's another guy said that if, uh, if you haven't been mothered by the church, then you can't have God as your father. Um, and, and North Wake has been a great mother to me. You guys have uh, taught me what it looks like to follow Jesus uh, even when it's hard, even when you don't want to, uh, even when you're too tired. Uh, so thank you for that. And I, I just want to pray that God would bless you all, uh, bless the moms here, um, and bless our time together this morning. So let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would bless the moms here. God, their work is never done. And it's like they have an extra organ or something that, that lets them do more work than men will ever dream and, and be more joyful than we would ever dream of. Uh, in doing that work. And so bless them, Lord, uh, for uh, their hard work. Bless them for their care. Bless them for their example of godliness and humility in their homes. Father, bless this church uh, for its mothering of wayward sinners, uh, encouraging them back into fellowship with the Father and disciplining them uh, when need be and instructing them that they might be holy. Father, I pray this morning as we open your word together that we would abandon ourselves to you, your name, your kingdom, your will, that your purposes might be fulfilled in us, knowing that your purpose in us is holiness uh, and zealousness for good works. So we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Last week, Jeff Doyle so uh, helpfully walked us through the first little part of uh, what's called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's probably not the Lord's Prayer because Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't really praying. He's really teaching on prayer. So it's more of a, a model prayer. Uh, it's probably a better title for it. But last week, Jeff Doyle introduced us to the first little section that says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, many of us know that very, very well. If you remember anything from the Lord's Prayer, you, you probably remember that, and they kind of mumble the rest of it. But this, 
Everybody knows this, okay? But what I want to point out to you is that understanding what this is talking about is central to understanding the rest of the prayer. The rest of the prayer makes no sense at all unless you get this firm in your heart and in your mind. That's the business that we were about last year. It's talking about what is the kingdom all about? What is this mission of God? And that's really what Jesus has in mind here. Last year, Larry took us through the Bible really quickly to show us exactly what the mission of God is. What is the business of God? What is, is God's purpose in doing all the things, this, things that he's doing? And this is a summary that we came up with. It says, the Bible tells the story of the loving and awesome words and deeds of God to redeem all his creation, especially his wayward and sinful people from among all peoples for his namesake. So the mission of God is to redeem all of his creation, but especially wayward sinners like you and I who are in desperate need of redemption. Cornelius Plantinga has probably... He's a writer. He has the best book on sin that you will ever, ever read. It should be, uh, if you have 10 books in your life, it should be one of them. And it's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Um, and his, his chapter on this, uh, what he's going to lay out for us is the idea of shalom. It's probably, uh, it's worth the price of three books put together. But he says this um, about the mission of God, the coming kingdom of God. And uh, he says that, the Old Testament prophets dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out, rough places made plain, the foolish would be made wise, and the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains would run with wine, weeping would cease, and people would go to sleep without weapons on their laps. People would work in peace and work to fruitful effect. Lambs could lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful and benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood, and all nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean towards God and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from the valleys and seas, from women in the streets and from men on ships. He continues, and catch what he says here. He says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, injustice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way it ought to be. And this is what Jesus has in mind when he's teaching us to pray. A world, the way it ought to be. You see, the kingdom of God is where it will be the way that it should be. The name of God will be revered, and the will of God will be fulfilled according to the desires of God and the means of God that he will choose to use will be uh, those that he prefers. But we live in a different world than that. Uh, the world that we live in is dark and dirty and broken. Not so right. The last three weeks I've been to two, 
two funerals, uh, one of a 19-year-old girl that was murdered and uh, another of a six-month-old child that passed away. And it's just a reminder. Uh, things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Uh, parents should not bury their children. Uh, many of you have lost loved ones this year. Uh, many of you have lost jobs. Uh, many of your hopes to retire have been replaced with second jobs. Uh, many of your kids' college funds are gone. And again, you're reminded, it is not the way that it's supposed to be. But Jesus, as he prays about this kingdom, as he prays that this kingdom would come, as he teaches us to do that, it's as if this kingdom is looming over us. It's here, it's coming, it's in our presence, but it's still to be fulfilled. And there's nothing that separates this world from that world than a thin sheet of plastic. You can see it and anticipate it. It's brimming with hope and joy and peace and fulfillment and satisfaction and rightness and goodness. And you want it and you long for it. Jesus wants to teach you how to pray in such a way that you would poke holes in this thin sheet of plastic. That the blessing of God would pour down into your life, to the life of your family, to the life of your community, your boss, your co-workers, this church. And that things would begin to become right, not fully, but more right and more good, more whole, more put together. That's what Jesus wants to pray and teach you how to pray. Who doesn't want to do that? Who doesn't want to call in the kingdom of God into your life and into your, your community and into this church? Should entice us to pray. And Jesus starts with something simple as he moves into these very practical prayers. He says this. Clickers will always work in the kingdom. There we go. <clears throat> Jesus, in beginning to teach us how to pray, starts with the simplest things first. He says, give us this day our daily bread. And the people that he's speaking to are most likely people who worked a day and got paid for that day and then took the money from that day's pay and bought bread, you know, or food or whatever. This, this idea of bread probably encompasses all of food and maybe even uh, possessions, kind of the stuff you need, clothes, housing. But the people that he talked to were not only agrarian type folks, but they were also Jews and Jews who knew their Old Testament. And of course, when Jesus said daily bread, they would think of their forefathers who wandered in the wilderness and God provided food for them. So let's look there in Exodus 16, see what it says. So Jews are wandering around the desert. They don't have much food. If they brought some with them, it's probably run out by now. But it says this, they set out for Elim. And the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. So they've been out of Egypt for two and a half months. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, 
would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. So you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger? So they're looking back to their life in Egypt and saying, well, it would have just been better if we stayed there. It would have just been better if we were part of that kingdom with that ruler in that place. Obviously, they've forgotten the making the bricks without straw and all of that. But that's kind of how we are, isn't it? You know, we always remember the kind of good parts and don't remember the bad parts so well. But it goes on, and God's going to provide for them. I think I've, uh, let me see if i got this here. Okay, then the Lord said to Moses, so this is God hearing them, they're grumbling, and God hears them. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Because, of course, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't gather and work on the Sabbath, so they had to gather double. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. In this little short passage, you're going to see the word Lord repeated like seven times. Short little passage. So it seems really consistent of Jesus to say, the way that God provides for you should cause you to hallow the name of God. Because remember, God's providing this food for the Israelites that they would know it was him who brought them out of Egypt and they would see the glory of the Lord. God has the same thing in mind for you when you, pay, when you pray. You see, he doesn't want to just fill your belly with food. He wants to fill your heart with acclaim for God. That you would shout, God has provided for me. God is good. Look at what God has done. That your trust in God would be multiplied. That your hope in God and his ability to keep you would just be magnified. It's not just about a full belly. It's about a full heart. At first, this prayer seems really simple. But I think that this is a pretty dangerous prayer for most of us. Because were we to honestly pray, give us this day our daily bread, this would be a serious demotion. Most of us have enough food in our cupboards for a month, if not more. So what would it look like? How lavishly would we have to give? How generous would we have to be? We would have to bring truckloads of, full of food and drop them off here at North Wake at the Feed Ministry to really be in a place where we would say, give me this day the bread that I need. And I think that's what God's calling us to, is that our just rabid generosity would put us in a position to trust God because, of course, God gives you the things that you have that you might bless others. I mean, we all know that, right? I think this is a dangerous and beautiful prayer. I think that God wants to use your extra bread, your extra loaf, to feed your neighbor. 
to feed the folks you meet in your community, to feed Christians who won't eat today. I mean, there are Christians who won't eat today. I think God's calling us to give some of our bread. And this is hard. Jesus wants to get at your, at your heart through your wallet, get at your heart through your stomach. So I pray that you would pray this dangerous prayer in, in earnest and say, God, I'm willing to be whatever you want me to be in this community, to show your shalom, your peace, that I will bear that in our community by the way that I give, by the way that I extend hope, that I would rain manna on those who don't have as your hands in the same way that you did, that my neighbors might see your name is worthy to be praised. The next thing Jesus instructs us to pray is for debt forgiveness. He says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Sorry. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. The first, that first when I read this passage, I kind of really had to wrestle with it because it's not simple on the face of it. Um, like much of God's word, you have to uh, wrestle with it and put yourself under it. And so as I wrestled with it, at first I thought that he was saying something like, to the extent that we have forgiven our debtors, God forgive us. So basically in the past I've had people that owed me money, I forgave them. So God forgive me that way. Okay, to the extent that I did that, however much I did that. Well, I'm in some serious trouble if that's what I'm praying from God. I need way more than that. I need complete and total debt forgiveness from a God who I've wronged, I've assaulted, I've sinned against. First John is really helpful uh, in this, but before we do that, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like, um, I think he's saying something different. I think he's saying that the manner by which we've lent to people in the past is an illustration of how, uh, and having to forgive them, is how we want God to forgive us. So it'd be like this. I owe Jake Mason $100. You know, I go to him, I say, Jake, can I borrow $100? Of course, he says yes, he's a nice guy. He's the, he's the guy that's got all the money anyway, he's the treasurer. So I go to Jake, I say, can I borrow 100 bucks? He says yes. I come to him a week later, and I say, I cannot pay you back. What does Jake do? Like, I'm never going to be able to pay you. It just isn't going to happen. What does Jake do? He forgives my debt. But who has paid my debt? Is it just forgotten? No. Jake pays my $100 debt, in essence. So there's no debt that's forgotten. Debts are always paid, even if they're forgiven. But they're paid by the one to which they're owed. It's kind of like these federal bailouts that everybody's getting. Somebody's going to end up paying for it. Money tree, we're just picking money off of. Somebody's going to pay. And the same thing is true about this passage. God's not just forgetting debt. He's paying debt when he forgives. So Jesus is saying that we need to pray for debt forgiveness. And the way that we forgive, are forgiven debts in the past is a good example of that. First John is real helpful in kind of straightening out and illumining kind of what's going on here. And in First John, John says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if you know anything about God and you know anything about sin, you know that it is not 
just for God to forgive sin. Just in the same way that it would not be just for a judge to just forgive or acquit a confessed murderer. It's not just. It may be merciful, but it's not just. So how in the world, and, and John knows the word for mercy, so why does he use the word just? Why does he say just? Well, he continues on. He says, um, this little part right here doesn't pick up on what I want to show you. But in 1 John, starting in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now this word advocate is the word for one that comes alongside. And the picture that he's drawing here is of one uh, in a court setting. So basically Jesus comes alongside the one who sins and has confessed his sin, comes alongside him as a lawyer to argue his case before the judge, the father. But you've already confessed your sin. You're already saying, hey, I'm guilty. So what is Jesus going to argue? I mean, is he going to lie and make stuff up? No. So how is he going to argue your just forgiveness? Well, if you read on, you see this. He is the propitiation. This is talking about Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This notion of propitiation, probably one of the most important words you'll find in the Bible and helping you to understand how the Bible works. But this word propitiation means you owed, it's the, it's in the NIV you'll, you'll see it translated as atoning sacrifice, but basically you owed God a debt because you sinned. The debt that you owed him was your life. And God would basically take your life from you in death and punish you by his wrath and anger for all eternity. That was what you owed God, okay? But Jesus stands in your place. He is the propitiation for your sins. And what that means is that he takes the holy wrath of God on himself because of your penalty. So he pays your price, he pays your penalty, and does away with the wrath of God, all right? Leaving you just because the penalty has been paid. So there is no more debt against you. The debt has been paid, uh, Paul talks about it being nailed to the cross. It's done with. So there's no charge against you any longer. So when God goes to forgive your debt, it's not that he forgets it or merely forgives. No, Jesus has paid it. You know, song Jesus paid it all. This is what Jesus paid. He paid your debt that you owed to God by being a propitiation for sin. And this is exactly what Jesus has in mind when he says forgive us our debts. God forgiving the debts of wayward sinners like you and I based on the work of Jesus is the pinnacle, the very top of God's mission. Uh, uh, Timothy, or Peter, Paul writing to Timothy says that the mission of God is to create a people for himself who are zealous for good works. And so God is creating this people, and the way that he does that is through the work of Jesus. And that is the very top, the very pinnacle of what God wants to do in this world, is to save wayward sinners. Because there we see the love and the character and the grace and the mercy and justice of God all wrapped together. And no clearer does the acclaim and fame and worthiness of God become clear 
No more fully can his kingdom be seen than uh, in his subjects redeemed back to him based on his own work. No more clearly can his will, his sovereign, perfect, and good will be seen than in the redemption of sinners. This is where the mission uh, of God and the kingdom of God is most clearly seen as in the redemption of sinners. As I was writing this, I was sitting outside of, um, or inside of Starbucks, and it was last night, and it started to rain like, I mean, it was going nuts. I don't know if you were driving out in it, but it was just like sheets of rain. You couldn't see 20 feet in front of you. And as I thought, I said, God, you know, I pray that that would happen in our community, that sinners would come to know the Savior, that it would be like sheets of rain pouring down in our community, people flocking to the Savior, that our community would be drenched with people loving Jesus and being right with him and walking in his ways, that the kingdom would come in our community, in this church, in your home, in your families, because people have come to know Christ, that we would be drenched in salvation. We wouldn't be able to see 20 feet in front of us because of the work that God's doing, people coming to know Jesus, that this world that's separate, that is separated from us would just be just holes poked all in this thing, that people would come to know Jesus and walk in the joy that he offers them. Jesus moves on to address the circumstances that, that people find themselves in concerning evil. He says this, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is kind of a strange phrase. When he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, you might ask, well, why didn't he say, don't lead us into temptation? Well, in rhetoric, there's this kind of thing that you can do um, called litotes. And basically, it's, it's where you take and add emphasis to another part by negating the first part. So he says, not into temptation. So basically, he's saying the opposite. He's saying, God, lead us in paths of righteousness and deliver us from evil. And it's really interesting. Um, I was talking with a guy the other day, and uh, we were talking about evil. I was kind of moving towards sharing the gospel with this guy. And of course, he wanted to talk about, well, what about evil? And so I said, sure, let's talk about it. And he said... You know what I think evil is? I think evil is when people can't imagine the, this is the only bad thing about beards. I don't know if you guys know that, but if you preach, this thing gets caught in your beard. He said, evil is basically when people can't imagine uh, the pain and anguish they're going to cause someone else when they do evil. So basically, they have an imagination problem. They can't envision how bad it will be for the other person. Because surely if they could, they would never do it, Right? And I'm thinking, do you live in a different world than we do, than I do? Because I'm much worse than that. I can imagine uh, how bad it would be for me not to serve my wife. I know what, you know, I know what that looks like, and I still don't serve her. And that's evil. But even more than that, what about um, people who suffer great evil in their lives and still turn around and do evil? So it doesn't answer the problem. And I think that the reason that that is so is because we, we live in a world that thinks um, either that evil is not real 
or the evil one is not real, and you're foolish for even believing in a devil, for believing that people are evil. Um, people just think people are good. And every time I hear people say that, that people are basically good, I'm asking, what world do you live in? I mean, it may be that people in your neighborhood are okay, but not everybody in the world is good and right. So Jesus is addressing this world that we live in. And he's saying things are not the way they're supposed to be. You live in a world occupied by evil. They're evil usurpers on every throne in every kingdom. I don't care how much you like uh, any politician. They're a usurper at some level because they want their will done rather than Jesus's. The world we live in is occupied by evil. Your body is occupied by evil. You live in evil flesh that hates God still as a Christian. Your flesh hates Jesus and hates God. And that's why you have to fight against it. We live in a world with an adversary, a real devil, who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy everyone and everything. And he's busy. He is working. It's the world we find ourselves in. And without the meticulous moment-to-moment hand of God to lead you in paths of righteousness and to deliver you from evil, you will end up at the place of evil. You'll make evil decisions. You'll do evil things. You'll have evil thoughts. You'll align with evil groups. You'll vote for evil politicians. You'll mean the whole thing. You are prone to evil. It's the way you lean, but by God's grace. He may lead you out of that as you pray these prayers. I think this is a, when God's kingdom fully comes, there will be no more usurpers. He will eradicate all evil influences and dispositions and intentions and schemes. There'll be none of that. There'll be no more corruption and no more evil one who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. It will only be Jesus on the throne, in power, over your life. You won't live in a flesh that hates Jesus anymore. There won't be a world opposed to Jesus anymore. I long for that day. I hope for that day. And I want to see God bring showers of that type of world into my world, into this world, into our world, through prayers like this. Man, if you didn't want to pray before, Jesus is saying you can bring shalom into this world. If you want to get on board with what Jesus, what Jesus wants to do in, in us this year at North Wake, in joining God in his mission, this is the trailhead. If you want to go in that direction, you must be committed to shalom, peace-bringing prayers for your life, for your community, for this church. And this is where you get started, and that's what Jesus has in mind. So Jesus has ended his prayer and says something peculiar. He's, he switched from teaching on how you pray to really talking about how you live, okay? So kind of make a, make a break in your mind and say, okay, he's not talking about prayer anymore. He's talking about this is how I should live my life. This is what my life should look like. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
I've studied a whole bunch of theology, and that just doesn't fit with uh, what I deem to be good theology. If Jesus hadn't said this, and I said this to you, you guys would be like, heretic. You know, you guys would be like, you know, if I said this at the school that I go to, I would probably get kicked out. If Jesus hadn't said it, of course. This is hard. This is not easy. And what I want to do is to help you see, hopefully very quickly, that um, you can't just lift phrases out of the Bible and do theology with them. You can't build a theology of forgiveness on this one verse. You have to have a fully orbed, um, rigorous study of different passages that you might understand this one in light of what the whole Bible says. You know, not even just what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount or what Matthew says that Jesus said or any of that, but the whole thing put together, you, might have, you would have a full theology of what forgiveness even is. And Jesus, knowing that, uh, I think wanted to shed a little bit of light on this passage, and he does so in Matthew 18, 23 through 35. Peter comes to him and says, okay, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? And then he says seven, thinking he's like, you know, the man, I'm going to forgive somebody seven times. That's really a big deal. And Jesus is like, uh, no. He says, therefore, this is Jesus' response to Peter's, you know, thinking he was all that. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. A talent is 20 years wages, right? So I'm not real great at math. But 10,000 times 20 is 200,000 years of income. I mean, this is insurmountable. This is like a $3 trillion deficit or something. Did I say that? Um, insurmountable. This guy will never pay this, ever, never can. It will never get paid off. I mean, with interest and, I mean, even if he worked from then till today, he, wouldn't, he still wouldn't have paid it off. So it's insurmountable. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him, I don't know. This thing's getting all messed up. Yeah, okay, sorry. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have peace with me. Or have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. So he's saying, okay, I'm going to pay you back the 200,000 years of debt worth of income that I owe you. Right. Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. That's a bunch of money. So remember, though, did he just forget the debt? No, he paid it because he had given that guy this money. So basically, he's just out that money. I mean, he's not going to go get it from somewhere else. So in forgiving that debt, the master pays himself, in effect. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, this would be about three months wages, and seized him. And he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So basically, what happens is some of the servant's friends who's choking the guy, they see him choking the guy, and they go back and tell the master and are like, you need to talk to this guy. Something, this isn't right. So then the master summoned him, the servant, and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, 
And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. I think he's still in jail. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we see a very clear principle in this passage. Forgiveness for others is rooted in, based on, powered by, found in, achieved by the forgiveness that's found in the master. Okay? So, the servant. It would not have been right for him to forgive the other guy, the hundred denarii, because he owed that money to the other master. So he should have collected it and given it to the master. But the master forgives his debt. So therefore, he doesn't need that money anymore. He doesn't need the hundred denarii. He's just being greedy and unforgiving. But the master says, my forgiveness to you should have motivated you to be gracious also. So it's the character of the master that's being transferred and forgiven debt that should play out in the relationship with other debtors with other servants. Jesus makes it clear that forgiveness of others can only be done when you have been forgiven. Now, a lot of times what happens is we take verses like that and we basically undo the power that we see in what Jesus says when he says that if you don't forgive others, uh, you'll not be forgiven. It'd be a real temptation to be like, okay, God's forgiven me. He can't unforgive me, so I really don't have to forgive others that way. But Jesus is saying, no, you have to live a life that is marked by forgiveness of other sinners. Or you will not receive forgiveness. What's happened in uh, a lot of our churches is grace has become really cheap. And when we've been shown grace, we think, well, God's gracious. He won't really punish. So I don't really have to live a holy life. But Jesus is saying, no, you have to live this way. I mean, the people who heard this sermon when they left, they were like, man, I've got to go home and forgive my you know, husband for not spending enough time with me or speaking to me. Or I need to go forgive my boss for... Not noticing the work that I do and being angry at him. I need to go forgive my children uh, because I, I yelled at them because they didn't clean their rooms quick enough. I mean, they, these people, after they heard this sermon, would have rushed home and rushed to the, the, you know, the market to find whoever it is that they need to forgive because they believe that they wouldn't be forgiven if they didn't live a life of forgiveness. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And the Bible holds these things in tension. You are forgiven only based on the work of Jesus Christ. But if you do not live a forgiving life, marked by the character of the master, you will not be forgiven. This should hit you right between the eyes. I used to do student ministry here, and if I were teaching this passage to students, I would say to them, you need to stand up right now, and you need to find whoever it is that you have not forgiven and do business with them right now. That's how we would do it. 
And they would do it. They'd get up, they'd find whoever it was, they'd pray with them, and it'd be over. But we're adults. We can't do that. That would be just un-something, I don't know. But I want to encourage you. Be that serious. Before the sun goes down tonight, uh, Daniel's going to come up and they're going to lead us in a song. But as they do that, don't be distracted from Jesus' heavy words that if you don't live this way, you will not be forgiven. You should live every moment of your life in forgiveness. Keep short accounts uh, with those in your life. With your wife, with your children, you should be saying to them, will you forgive me and I forgive you? Probably six to ten times a day because that's just how sinful we are. Keep short accounts and begin that today. As you sit in your seat uh, or as you come forward, be making a list of those folks that you need to call or text or go see or email before the sun goes down tonight that the evil one would not have a foothold. Deal with it. Take care of it. Or your soul will be in danger. So I do want to pray that God would give you the grace to do that because, of course, you need him to lead you out of temptation and deliver you from evil. This is what we're talking about. So let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would lead us out of the temptation to be bitter and deliver us from the evil that would go and choke another servant for the simple trespasses that they've done against us. Extend grace, extend mercy, give hope, challenge our hearts, Lord. Break them as mine has been broken by this passage, that we might keep short accounts, that our lives would be marked with the character of the master who has pity and forgives. Lord, may we have pity and forgive other sinners that your kingdom might come in our lives and on this earth. We pray in your name, Jesus. Let your kingdom come in my world.